Welcome to Accounting High. I hired my best friend to be our integrator, and she resigned saying that I was being a control freak. <laughs> and the, the, We well, sense I'm, a theme here. Yes. I want to have control over the product and all the details until we've hit my definition of success. Scott, we talked about this the other day, you know, can't get, my, get out of my own way. So these patterns of fear, I like that phrase. May I have your attention, please? I repeat, may I have your attention, please? This is another public service announcement brought to you in part by Accounting High. The views and events expressed here are of the next generation of accounting and tech professionals leading this space. Welcome to Accounting High. Whether you loved high school or you hated it, here we're on a mission to set our own traditions. Here's your chance to be a part of an unforgettable experience redone. So sit back, relax, and open your mind because class is in session. Anything else? Yeah. So without further ado, introducing the star of our show, Scotty and Jackie. We're going to have a problem here. Class is in session. I've got with me Jackie Meyer, the concierge CPA, the peaceful entrepreneur, a doctoral candidate, a CPA, a CCA, a CCTA. She's got a lot of things going on right now. She's busy, but we all are. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Scott. I appreciate it. Yeah. So last time we were together on air, it was on your live AI special mm -hmm. a couple months ago, I think. Yeah. So I have my own podcast, The Concierge CPA. And this summer, I took a month off with my fam and decided to rebroadcast some fun AI panels that we did. And Scott, you're one of our guests, and we had a lot of fun. Lots of fun. Lots of AI talk and tech talk. Today, we're on the Accounting High Guide, and we're going to talk about peaceful entrepreneur, whatever that means. We're going to also talk about things like vision, things like purpose, things like mindsets, entrepreneurship, and being at peace with yourself and with others, with your teams. So the big things, this is where we talk about all the big things, emotional intelligence, those kind of stuff, some uncomfortable conversations too. Yep. So, Jackie, tell me how you got into first accounting in general. How did you even become a CPA or why why was that the path you took? Oh man, that reminds me with your intro saying whether you liked high school or not. I hated high school. You hated it? <laughs> yeah, I was I didn't really fit in. I was reading like these huge novels by Stephen King and didn't really want to talk to anybody or do anything. I ended up graduating a year early just to get the heck out of there. Would you say you were antisocial or introverted or both? I'd say introverted and anxious. <laughs> anxious. Okay. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So I graduated high school early and then I thought, well, I didn't have a lot of money growing up, didn't have a lot of parental or family support. And I moved out of my home when I was 16 
And I thought, well, what college degree is going to let me take care of myself the best? And it was not accounting. I came up with finance. So my undergrad is in finance. And then I started working for this quirky CPA in Fort Worth, Texas. And he asked me to do some tax returns and I fell in love with it. I love the detective work involved and like being able to kind of magically come up with, with money. It's just this amazing feeling. So I fell in love with it, went back for my master's in accounting and here I am. Was it the money? Did it pay well? Did accounting pay well? Well, I mean, starting off finance and working at, I mean, I don't know what, what was your role at the firm? With the firm oh, the just, you know, lowly staff, financial advisor slash accountant. Yeah. So, I mean, it was probably like 45 K a year or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And then I found a job at countrywide before they got shut down and (laughs) uh, I wired big money for them. And then I got in the back door door at Deloitte. Wait, so what happened with countrywide? Oh, gosh. Countrywide was a mess. So, you know, we had the 2008 crash and Countrywide was kind of in the middle of the whole thing in regards to not well-documented loans. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of just went crashing and burning. But I had left there. So you were wiring big money with very little documentation. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And I would have been like 21 or 22 at the time. So I don't know why they entrusted me with that, but whatever. (laughs) Well, I mean, they didn't have great checks and balances anyway, or even uh, great systems if they were just giving away loans and they got shut down. I I mean, maybe there was some shady stuff going on too, but I I knew of Countrywide. I just didn't know what happened to them because don't hear them anymore. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was a decent experience. It gave me some interesting exposure to the finance world and accounting world. The CEO was really a strange dude. He once said like, he was quoted that employees are like fish in a fish tank and they'll adapt to anything you put them in kind of thing. And interesting. it was just weird. You know, I, I didn't really feel the love. So wasn't my place to shine. So I got it's out not of there. good leadership, but it didn't no. work out anyway. So you went to the big four then. I did. And it was in a really odd way because I didn't intern. I paid my own way through college. I was already working full time. And so I found my way into the international tax division of Deloitte in their kind of secondary office in Dallas, not even their main fun downtown office, the secondary IT office. And then I worked my way to transfer to the high net wealth group and which was very lucky, but also insane because our leadership was very bad there as well. So I got exposed to a lot of bad leadership to learn from. Well, and that's going to lead us to where we're further down this path, but you've, so the trend is like, you're out here figuring things out on your own. You left home and you're hopping from job to job or finding your place and learning who you are. So you're sort of like the lone wolf traveling around, figuring things out. You have your CPA at this point, right? Mm-hmm. And then what happens after Deloitte? You got, you're working for people that shouldn't be leaders. They're probably diminishing what you're capable of all throughout. And you're ready to spread your wings. What happened next? 
I went looking for someone that was going to treat me better. And I found a little 25 person CPA firm in Irving, Texas. And it was one of the only ones that I knew of that it was actually 100% owned and run by a woman. And so she took me under a wing and I spent a couple years there. But I don't work very well for other people. That's what I found. And so I always push buttons and get argumentative. And I really wanted to expand into Southlake, which is where I live now, believe it or not, because it's a great affluent area and great market to be in. And so I just kept pushing buttons, pushing buttons, pushing buttons, and they ended up actually firing me. <laughs> so maybe it wasn't the bosses all, all along. If there <laughs> maybe was the trend, <laughs> maybe, maybe it was. And trust me, I've been fired from many jobs. Yeah. I never really ever blamed the bosses. I just knew I wasn't a good employee. Um, yeah. I typically knew it was my fault all along the way. I think early on, I would see things and like, oh, this boss is terrible because of this reason. But usually whatever I was pointing out in them, I had those same traits. So mm -hmm. typically that's what made me a bad boss too. So when I was a boss, I was a terrible boss at first. I've gotten yeah. better over time. But what you're learning is you can't work for men or women. It's not, doesn't matter who it is, but you got to work <laughs> <Right>? for yourself. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I was very upset at the time. I remember calling my dad and just bawling and it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I decided to start my own CPA practice and I paid off 90K of, of student loan debt in like a year based of, on it. And then it just like took off from there. People really liked my young, weird, quirky, proactive nature. And nope. it was, yeah, it was a good place to be. So it was one of the best things that happened to me. So how'd you start out? This was around 2010? Yeah, 2010. Mm -hmm. How did you start out? What kind of clients or how did you bring on your first clients? You know, any, any client will do <laughs> back then, right? I actually advertised on LinkedIn and got some really awesome, like three to five awesome Dallas-based business owner clients and entrepreneurs that stayed with me throughout the whole practice. I sold last year, actually, after 12 years. So that was before LinkedIn cost an arm and a leg to advertise on. I don't know if it would still work today. It probably wouldn't, but it, it definitely worked back then. Yeah, I think for today, the best way to do it on LinkedIn is natural, Like, but you got to yeah. be consistent pushing content out and getting in front of people. But yeah, I mean, before it was SEO and paid per clicks or paid advertising. For um, sure. I don't see too many paid ads. It's all about the algorithm with LinkedIn these mm -hmm. days, but we can talk about that a little bit. Um, I think it's really interesting too, just setting out and starting something on your own, especially at that stage, you've had some experience at this point. So you kind of know what you want, but you didn't know who you wanted to work with. You just knew you wanted to work for nobody. You knew who right. you didn't want to work for, and that's anybody else. Yeah. Dope. And did you have any employees to start out with or was it just you? No, it was just me. I waited way too long to hire people. I was a control freak. I had a lot of trust issues and I drove myself into the ground over the years. You know, I had a really decent practice, but I wasn't delegating. I wasn't getting a whole lot of help. Couldn't get I out hired, of your own way. Yeah. I hired Cheryl off of Craigslist. I've actually hired like three people off Craigslist and it's been pretty good fits, but People always think that's hilarious. So I got my job Craigslist ad. Wait, there yeah. you go. Yeah. So Cheryl was with me for a really long time and she did bookkeeping work and, you know, she was a great, 
like secondary companion. She helped me learn how to trust people better because she was so reliable. So that was, that was awesome. Trust is the biggest thing. I usually say that too. Um, the only way I was able to get out of my firm was I trust them. It was, it's not about them trusting you as much as it is you putting trust in them. And that's hard for a lot of people, trust issues. And that could date back to early life. Mm-hmm. You know, you can stem why, you know, why certain things are the way they are, you know, through therapy and through learning what happened in early in life, being a control freak too, not being able to delegate. Those are all the traits of somebody that's probably either meant to be and stay a solopreneur or somebody that's got to get out of their own way if they're looking to grow something and scale it beyond them or sell it at any point. Um, It's hard. It's hard for a lot of us, especially accountants, because we know the right way to do things. And we know if somebody's doing it wrong and it's easier for us to just do it. Yeah. How do you get out of the way? So you, but you ended up growing a pretty large practice. I mean, it was 1.5 million by the time you sold it. Is that right? How many employees did you have? It was 1.1 sold for, but the cool thing is that it was only 56 clients. So Dope. I thought, yeah, I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah. Did you What's ever, so if it was 56 clients, it seems like, well, just get the metrics of it. So you had 56 clients, you had how many employees? Uh, let's see. At the end, we had about like six or seven full-time equivalents. Mm-hmm. What type of um, clients were they? All high net worth. Okay. Yeah. So executives turned entrepreneurs. So similar to the stuff you were doing in Deloitte. Yeah. Okay. So you took some of that experience and it's sort of, that's a niche. That's a vertical. If it's the, you know, same client persona, same client type may not Mm -hmm. be an industry, but it's still a client vertical and you're growing on that. So what was it about, at what point did you decide you needed out? Or you want it out of my firm? Yeah, that you wanted to sell. Oh gosh, it. we're fast forwarding a lot. We're okay. fast forwarding, <laughs> yeah, because we're after already. I want to talk about the present too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So in 2016, I had had one child. I was pregnant with my second, and I found my business coach Chuck Bauer, and I said. I cannot repeat another busy season like this. You know, like I'm micromanaging everything. I'm spending way too much time on work. I'm not feeling well. You know, it was affecting me physically and mentally. And so he actually helped me completely transform my practice to this like kind of high net worth tax value price packages. And then I ended up trademarking what I call the ROI method of tax planning. And based on the success that I had from that conversion, and then Intuit, uh, I was a huge Intuit user, ProConnect Tax Online. And so I did a lot of, you know, we kind of partnered up on some marketing work there. And I was on the Intuit Tax Council. They gave me a lot of speaking opportunities to tell others about my experience. And uh, in 2018, Chuck and I decided we were going to co-coach together on the same principles that transformed my firm. And so we formed Certified Concierge Accountant Coaching Program. And that was kind of the start to actually answer your question. That was the start of me realizing, like, I actually like working with accountants more than I do taxpayers directly. I can empathize with them. My heart is with people that are struggling, and I know that they don't have to be. 
I mean, it's 2023. There's a lot of solutions out there, and I still don't get why people don't embrace them. Well, I do, actually. It's because they undervalue themselves. That's the truth. They're not valuing themselves enough to invest in a program that's going to make them better. And it it makes me sad. But the people that do, they're killing it, and I can help them, and, and I love it. So then COVID hit... And I had been dreaming about creating a tax planning software. And so I went to a vendor of mine and said, hey, you want to create this for me? I'll give you some royalties. They said, yep, let's do it. And TaxPlanIQ was born. So it's an end-to-end tax advisory solution from the ROI method of proposals to presentations, tax planning reports for the client. We have full project management system with tasks and a full professional education library of about 100 strategies. And that's when I realized I was done with the accounting firm. Because honestly, and you know this, Scott, SaaS companies are valued way higher than accounting firms. And TaxPlanIQ was already valued with only like 100 users way higher than my firm was. And I loved working with accountants. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to let go of my tax and I'm going to refocus on this. And that's where I am today. So you had a myriad of things going on in the midst of the firm Mm -hmm. with the influence of tech. So it was into it showing some, you know, some showing, showing you that you were, you had some value, you were on their council and you start speaking in front of accountants and you start seeing, well, this is a similar audience to my clients but they're me. They're like a reflection of me and they understand me better. So I like this better because I can help them because I'm working. Okay. It kind of all started with that into it and obviously working with a coach. So at what point did you decide I need a coach or how did you find this coach? How did you find Chuck? Because you ended up becoming colleagues working together, but how did you find the coach first? So I attended a conference with this organization called PASBA. Are you familiar with PASBA? No. Okay. So it's a I think so. I think I've heard it actually. Yeah. Professional Association of Small Business Accountants. And it's a really great smaller crew. And Chuck has been ingrained in that group for a long, long time. And so I attend the conference. I'm just randomly talking one-on-one with someone. You know, I really like talking one-on-one and diving like really deep into stuff, just like you do, Scott. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And like, we've had some pretty deep convos just, you know, out of nowhere. But, and then some people I met there just said, hey, you should talk to Chuck. And then he happens to be in Dallas and I live in a suburb of Dallas. It doesn't really matter. It's all, you know, Zoom meetings and whatnot. But I interviewed him, didn't like him at all. thought he was so cocky <laughs> and First he impressions. Is, yeah but he's a really good coach and he and I are kind of like yin and yang or good cop bad cop and so you know when we join forces it's like so fun so fun so wait who's the good cop me <laughs> okay okay well yeah you didn't like him at first too so too confident like arrogant in a way or what was it about him oh, that turned yeah. you off Okay. Yeah, arrogant. But of course, I mean, I've always been overly arrogant about everything that I've done, right? Well, so, confidence. You've got a lot of confidence. I don't know about arrogance. Didn't seem like that. But it, first impressions always, you know, you got you to get to know somebody too. But that's interesting too, because it was the community and the conference that led you to finding somebody else and to go beyond just what you can do. 
And sure. I mean, obviously, like anybody going to conferences is going to experience something different, but they get that extra space to go deep and to have those deeper conversations because you're not rushed through anything. Yeah. So you have that extra space. Tell me about this ROI method of tax planning that you founded, that you trademarked. Mm -hmm. What was it about that that you saw? There's something here. This is different. I need to trademark this. Yeah. Well, accountants are scared to value price. They, any CPA is always trying to compare it to contingent fees, which is not allowed via the AICPA. And I just wanted to shout out from the rooftops that value pricing is not contingent fees. And the ROI method is so easy for your clients to visualize the tax savings that you can bring to the table for them. You're literally just saying, hey, I'm estimating I can save you 40K a year doing this, this, and this strategy. Your investment in me is 15K a year. Here's your net ROI that we revisit it every year. And it just, you know, grew my practice from 2010 charging 150 annually for a 1040 to 2022 clients averaging 15K a year and paying $30,000 onboarding fees. And so I wanted to share that method because it's win-win for everybody. So when you're working with high net worth individuals, it's, you know that they've got the money to spend and you know you can save them a ton of money. You know, an accountant that's working with small businesses that don't even have that much to spend. I think that's part of where their fear comes from. But being scared to value price, that's that's let's dive a little bit deeper into that, because I don't think everybody's scared to do something. They have fears. They have fears of change. But a lot of them are comfortable the way they're doing it. And sure. whether they're making a whole lot of money doing it or not, if they're comfortable doing things a certain way, it is very hard to change their ways especially mm -hmm. accountants. We don't like, to oh, change. Yeah. we know something we don't like to change. And, but you and I were probably different among a lot of accountants because we probably ran toward the change and wanted to do things differently. A lot of entrepreneurial accountants want to change and they want to do things differently and they try too many things, but the team mm -hmm. resents them for it. That's right. what happened with me. That's what I hear a lot. So when you say somebody's scared to value price, I think it's more, they're afraid of the change because the way that they're doing it is working. It may not be working the best, yeah. but it's not for them. It's like, well, how are we going to stop tracking our hours? How are we going to know where all of our time is spent? Like, that's the time. That's the, the, you know, what Ron and Ed say, that's the cancer, right? Time's the cancer in our profession. But what, like, the, what's the path to go straight from time to value pricing? There's a lot of courses, a lot of learning, a lot of theory, and accountants are uncomfortable with like the, the squishy stuff, the theory and like, right. well, this, this will work if you try it. Well, it didn't work and it's easier to just to price that based on the costs. So right. I don't know. There's, there's a lot more to say there, a lot more to do, but you're giving people. No, that's definitely the, that's, you definitely hit the nail on the head. It's kind of fear of change or just wanting to stay comfortable with what you're, where you're at because you've got so much else on your plate, you know? Right. And you're here developing a tool set for accountants. And this is before the software. This was just a method that mm -hmm. you had that was working for you. And then you were like, okay, now I can help more people because this is what changed me. So going through into it, did you meet a lot of influential people early days in the Intuit Council? Because a lot of strong bonds happened through a lot of these partner councils. I know the same oh, thing happened with me okay. with Zero. So what was it? Who were some of the people you met early on at the Intuit Council days? 
Oh, there's just too many people to name, but I know like at Intuit, Jim Buffington is amazing. Unfortunately, he left running the Intuit Tax Council, but he's a great guy. And Stephanie Friswell was also co-running it and she was pretty awesome too. We got to talk to Brad, the former CEO, and he was quite an amazing character. I reached out to him. Hmm? Brad Smith? Yeah, Brad Smith. Yeah. He was a really, he's a really cool guy. And I reached out to him a couple of years ago. I'm on the Forbes Finance Council and I was writing something about leadership and I asked him for a quote and he gave me one. And I just, he's just a really, really interesting guy. So that was fun. Fellow council members. Wow. I mean, again, there's just so many. It, it would be hard to just say one or two. That's all right. No, <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm always curious about those things. So what you really wanted to do was have impact. You were having impact for your clients, but you're moving on and you want to have impact in this profession with accountants. So what was the spark to, I mean, obviously SaaS companies are valued more. Obviously there's potential to make a lot more money, but what was it about the tech or the software that, that you were drawn to? Was it the, cause you're working with Intuit. So that's tech in mm-hmm. itself. You're working with other tech. Was it, what brought this forward to you, this opportunity? Well, ironically, you know, I was kind of begging them to create this tax planning software while I was on the tax council. And then after I left, they now have created their own version of the tax product. And unfortunately, we're now competitors. And so I'm not, you know, involved in QuickBooks speaking events and stuff like that anymore, which I do miss because I just heard Ryan Reynolds is at QuickBooks Connect this year and I'm not going to be there. And I'm very sad. I saw Oprah there a few years ago. Were you at that one? Not Oprah. I was the first time was last year, Malcolm Gladwell and Simon Sinek and Serena. Very cool. Yeah. They always have really cool guests. I'm just hoping one day they have OKR. They have a rapper up on stage. (laughs) Yeah, baby. <laughs> One day we can only dream. Yeah. And you got to throw that out there because that's how it's going to happen. So, yeah. Sure. So, so yeah, Intuit so- wouldn't do it. So you said, I'm going to do this myself. Intuit's not going to build this yeah. out. So this is before Intuit built out their own and you were mm-hmm. going to just do this on your own. Yeah. And I liked the challenge. I liked the idea of as skewed the statistics are with women in accounting. They're even worse in software development. I mean, there are very few women CEO software developers. So I believe that uh, it's like that in all business. Yeah, that's true. But some more than others, right? True. That's true. Yeah. So I just like the idea of the challenge. And I've always been kind of a tech geek. I don't know anything about programming. I still don't. And that's okay. But, you know, I rely, I delegate that. I rely on other people to do that part. And then I just work on the vision side. So how many founders know programming? How many software founders? Not too I many. I mean, the ones that can do both. So this is, this is it when you say the visionary, because that's what all businesses need is a visionary, but they also need somebody that's going to hold it all together. And that's typically in EOS terms, the integrator. Yep. Yeah. The operations person, the person that's going to take things to the finish line or set up the systems and set up the processes. So you needed that. You were the visionary. Who is that? Is that Chuck? Is he the integrator or who's the, who's no, your integrator? No. Chuck's a visionary as well. I was the visionary and integrator. 
And you were funny both. enough, I know, yeah, I know that's not super common and it probably no. wasn't the best idea. But so I actually ended up hiring, we implemented EOS a couple years ago, and which has been great. I hired my best friend to be our integrator and she resigned saying that I was being a control freak. <laughs> and the, the, we well, sense I'm, a theme here. I know, I know. But like, yes, I want to have control over the product and all the details until we've hit my definition of success. Okay. And we were very early on. We were premature. We were just a year in the making of Tax Plan IQ. Um, unfortunately, it hurt our friendship quite a bit, but that's a whole nother story. I um, empathize with that because that's like typically people that are good friends tend to compliment each other in a lot of ways. You said that with Chuck. That's why I, I thought he, maybe he was your integrator, but he's also a visionary. But usually what I see my patterns in life, I always find that person that could be my integrator in life, whether it's my wife or my operations manager at the firm. I'm still trying to find that for this whole podcast thing and like accounting high stuff. I, I'm pretty sure I found somebody that is that, but I don't want to knock on wood. I don't want to, I don't want to jinx it. But when you do right. find somebody that could be close and, and I see most of my friends in my life too, were always that other half of me that I needed to compliment me, but I didn't ever appreciate that as much. And I did have those control issues until I got over myself. That was when I realized like, I don't even know that much. Most of the time, these people have better ideas than I, I do sometimes, but it's picking the right ideas and doing the right things and working together and being in sync on that vision. And I think that's the hardest thing for a lot of us visionaries who think we can be integrators. We can't. If we're good, if you're a really good visionary, you shouldn't be the integrator. And I have seen people well, successfully yeah. do it, though. I have. Well, they're each a full-time job, right? Yeah. So... But yeah, I mean, she she said that she noticed this like pattern of fear in me because, Ooh. you know, I'd sold the firm and obviously I made money off of that, but I didn't treat that as if that was my recurring income. And so I had this fear that of like losing money, missing out, and it kind of just goes right back to like childhood, right? I that mean, it always taps does. right into the scarcity mindset. Yeah. I've got that too. I know that feeling. You don't have the same recurring that you have at your firm. And now this is something different. And, you know, your actions are reflected on your mindset too. And the things mm -hmm. that you do and the things that you say are reflected on the, what you think. And that's right. just your own thoughts. That's your own theory. You know, any company that's starting out doesn't have any recurring revenue. They don't have clients. But <laughs> right. some some entrepreneurs are better at spending money and some of them do it too much. And we see that as accountants. Mm -hmm. You know, you're spending too much money. You're going to run out of money. And we're concerned about that. But when we're running a business, at least for me, I'm not spending much money at all. I'm doing everything I can without spending any money or without making taking big risks, fear. Fear anchors me from, from the risks, fear and, and fear of spending money. That's, mm -hmm. a, that's always the big problem. So how did you get over that fear or have, or, or do you still have that fear? Are you still working on that? I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah, me too. So, I mean, I hired, I went to a, a, a counselor that also did leadership coaching and I told her, Hey, I was told this is my problem. Can you help me? She's like, okay, well, let's evaluate you for whether you need leadership coaching or just counseling and it ended up being counseling. <laughs> 
So funny. Yesterday I recorded an episode and my guest defined the difference between a coach and a therapist. And nice. Clearly defined the difference. Um, and honestly, I have to go back and think about it for a second to tell you, but check out that episode with Amber Setter. But a leadership coach isn't the same as a counselor. They're no, different. Not at all. So yeah. tell me your definition of why you didn't need a leadership coach and why you ended up with a counselor slash similar to a therapist, the counselor. Yeah. So okay. yeah, it's a, she's a therapist. Yeah. A, a psychologist. So I know this because my doctorate in leadership is centered around coaching. And so I've heard all the ins and outs of the technicalities of what coaching is and isn't, et cetera. Coaching at the end of the day is really just helping. If I was coaching you, Scott, I would be helping you draw out your own insights. But if you have personal scars or PTSD or um, trauma that you need to work through, that is not the job of a coach. And it's going to get in the way of your coaching. So you have to address those anxieties, depression, the fear, you know, all those things, the baseline stuff before you get into coaching. And that's so that's what we did is we started doing uh a lot of therapy. <laughs> you got to get to the root of the problems and you got to figure out what's what's causing it. What are the things that you're repressing? What are the things that you're that you don't even see your blind spots and the stuff yeah, that you're hiding? Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm I would say I'm pretty like self-reflective. Like I recognize the problems. I just like you said, just like you Scott, we talked about this the other day, you know, can't get my, get out of my own way, right? Yeah. So Yeah. It's yeah, never and, well, and and sometimes you look too close at them and you don't even see them. Like mm -hmm. you're so close to the problem that you can't see it. You can't see the difference between you don't even see it as a problem because right. it's right in front of you or you're standing in front of you and you can't see. So, right. and that's that's how I get in my way is I rationalize things and I think about them and I again, like I I say this is right, this is okay and I justify it or I'm a denial and a lot of it's denial too. And that's where the getting in my way happens as well. So these patterns of fear, I like that phrase. And I like that you recognize that too, you know, because she was supposed to work out. She's your friend. You guys have been friends. You were best friends. And now you're going to work together and everything's going to be fine because we're friends first. And that's what happens with a lot of partnerships and a lot of businesses that join forces is in the beginning. There's that like early phase of everything can go right. And we can't even imagine anything going wrong. Did you guys have those kind of conversations early on or did you just assume it was going to work? I think we kind of just assumed it was going to work and that's the problem, right? I mean, you always have to cover all the bases. I didn't really understand the depth of what an integrator really does. And I think that some integrators take it a lot further than others as well. And I mean, it, I felt like I'd been put on the crazy train. I was like the old grandma CEO that like no one, you know, no one wanted to hear from. And I could go over and do my visionary stuff. And then she was going to run the company and be the CEO. And I'm like, that's not okay with me. I, I'm running the show here, you know? Sure. So, yeah. But you can't it have it both ways. Yeah. You can't, well, you can have it both ways, but there's certain amount of trust that you have to give that integrator. And mm -hmm. you're going to have to allow them to make decisions without you and be okay with the decisions too. That's what I learned. If you're successfully going to be a, a good integrator, you, there are certain things that you have to allow the integrator, a good visionary. You got to allow the integrator to do things autonomously too. You got to be in sync and, and 
working toward the same vision, but they can't be micromanaged. Mm-hmm. You know, I've learned that and I had to stop. I'd stop getting in the way of them too. And like we said earlier, it's the trust and trusting them to execute that vision in the right way. And if it doesn't look the way that we see it in our heads, sometimes that's okay too. Sometimes we have to let them fail or let them try something to see if it works. Cause if it does work, then we can reconfigure what's in our head too. And then realize, well, wait, if that's working and I thought it wasn't going to work, then what else could potentially work too? For sure. So, you know, you're there to support, but you're also there to allow them to fail or allow them to do things that you may not do differently. Mm-hmm. But you don't have two things in your way now. You're not like focusing on a software company and a firm. You've got the software company and you've got your brand, your personal brand. You've got your podcast and other things that you're doing. So you really are right now just focused on growing one thing. And that's your user base for your SaaS software. Yeah. And fortunately, it all goes hand in hand with the coaching work. So the coaching, you know, every Thursday is my coaching day, put on my coach hat and it's my favorite day of the week. I love, you know, working with other accountants that are open minded and want to learn and grow and that I know I can help them. Going back to like what I actually wanted to be growing up was a psychologist. Oh, wow. So, yeah. There you go. So it but all coach is different than personal. a therapist though, right? Coach is different yeah. than a psychologist. <laughs> well, I like the idea of coach because I don't have to be a therapist. I don't have to get that deep, but I can get deep enough to really help people. And I mean, that's what we all want to do at the end of the day, right? And coaches blur the line between therapy a lot of times too. We sure. did talk about that on our and yesterday. And that was coaches can be very impactful on a business's trajectory, business's life, but it sometimes they reveal the fact that you do need therapy and, right? <laughs> and maybe that's a better, because that's what happened with us when we had a coach implementing EOS and things, you know, things get real a lot of times, especially if you're getting vulnerable with your team and then, then you start to see where and why you're getting in your own way too. So, mm-hmm. so that's cool. So you still are a coach for accountants. And mm-hmm. so what's the, I guess is, What's your big goal with the software, with Tax Plan IQ? Like, where, where do you hope that leads you? Because it sounds like the coaching thing is really just a, a source for you to have impact directly, mm-hmm. like one-on-one impact. The software, you may not see that impact, that one-on-one impact, because you're not going to be dealing with the users as right. often. So you've got something that can give you fulfillment and purpose in what you're doing day to day. And you can see directly the impact you're having on people. Uh, that one yeah. to many, you may not see that. You, you're just seeing the bigger numbers right. and everything. And that's, I think, what gets frustrating about it. So, you know, I watch the numbers every day. It's all about like total users, right? And the goal is to make the biggest impact possible. And so that through software is volume, right? And so the more tax advisors that we can help create or equip or make even better, the, you know, that's what we're trying to do. So we grew very quickly the first year, but it was pretty organic just through former coaching students that understood my methods and ways. Um, and we got to like a hundred users or a hundred firms pretty quickly. And then we started like just started balancing out and we started hitting what's called churn, which is a huge (laughs) thing for software companies that I had no idea about. And you have to figure stuff out. Define churn for our listeners that don't know. Churn is just the software users that you're losing. 
And just like in any business, it costs five times more to acquire a new client than it does to retain an existing one. I say that I coach accountants about that in order to upsell their clients and provide better quality service. But same thing exists in software, right? So you're seeing, oh, okay, great. We got two new users today. Oh, wait, we lost two users today. Dang it. So our number wasn't going up. And so I've been pretty stressed out the last year or so trying to figure that out. And I think we finally did. And we're at 230 firms now. And I made a huge goal, which I need the listeners help with. To double to 500 users by year end. I don't know how That's we're going to do That's more than it. double. That's 270. I, okay. Okay. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> so, but this, you got to be ambitious and you got to have these big goals in order to feel that like ignition and excitement and you're growing something and that's cool. That's like probably how you felt in the early days of the firm when you started seeing things and wow, I'm going to have employees now and I'm going to grow more and I'm going to get more clients. Um, mm -hmm. But you were intentionally like you had kept a few clients and it was high net worth, probably really high fees for a smaller number of clients. Now with this, with the software, you could potentially have thousands of clients all using your product. My parents have a software company. And when I go inside my dad's office, he's got a big map on the wall of the world and all the little pins on where all their users are. And he's tracking everything oh, cool. where they are. And they, they've been, he's been doing that pretty much my whole life since I was real young. So, and that's, that's always fun to like, see, oh, now we got a new user in this country or this state and we didn't have anybody in this state before. So that was always like really cool for them. Um, but I've been watching that long term. I don't know how many users they have now, but I'm sure at one point they had 230. Mm -hmm. So, and they're <laughs> still going at it. They're still going strong. And awesome. I'll say if they're listening to, it doesn't really matter, but I think they're getting in their own way with a lot of stuff, Ooh. or at least my dad is, and he's always acted as that visionary and the integrator for the software firm. So I think they could have had potential to continue to really grow, maybe get acquired, things like that. But they always hit ceilings along the way. And again, this is me being a passive observer. I'm not in the middle of it, but I see it because I see the patterns and I yeah. have the same patterns myself. I'm doing it right now with this. I did it with my firm and we get in our own way. So it's important to just acknowledge that too, because a lot of people are in denial and they don't think there's anything wrong. Anytime, I mean, maybe maybe nothing's wrong. Maybe you're people. Some a lot of people are okay with where they're at and they don't want to keep growing. But if you want to double your customer base, you're probably going to need an integrator at some point that's going to be able to take half of your job away and and you could elevate tax plan IQ. Yeah. So I actually am training up someone on my team right now into the integrator role. Ooh. So yeah. So How's that going? pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. I, she's been with us for four, probably four years now and I trust her completely and she's a gentle soul. So very going to be very different integrator than what I've been used to, but I think it's going to work out. Well, what do you mean when you say gentle soul? She is just a sweet person. She's yeah. a sweet person. And so honestly, that's my biggest fear with her being the integrator is that she won't be able to command the presence that she needs to make sure that things get done. Well, you're already good cop. So you can't have two good cops, right? Yeah. So we actually do you turn into fired. the bad cop if she's too sweet, then do you become the bad cop? 
Right, right. Exactly. So we did just hire someone else on the team that is going to pretty much be the bad cop. And I realized that was a whole like a gap. And so I think that's probably going to fix it. But we'll see. We'll see how it goes over the next few months. Well, let's talk about being too good of a cop. So I've always had trouble with people pleasing and not saying no and doing all the things and more things because I can't let anybody down. I think that stems deeper into, you know, more counseling, more therapy, stuff like that. But how do you get over that? Or have you gotten over that? Because being the good cop tends to be mean that you're going to be the good guy and say nice and say yes to things and not say no to people. You know, I don't know if any, I've, I don't know if I would call myself a people pleaser. I think that at the end of the day, it is what is kind of driving the fears and whatnot. But in the grand scheme of things, I'm just trying to actually just please myself. (laughs) I just, I want to be happy and I want to have a good life and I just, just get in my own way. And so at the end of the day, I want to feel proud of like what I'm doing and I want to feel like I'm making a difference in the world. Dope. And so no people pleasing. You do know how to say no. Is that right? Yeah. I'm a pretty good, pretty good knower. (laughs) Know her. All right. No, I like that. I like that. So on the socials, you talk about your daughter a lot. How old is your daughter? Uh, my daughter, Alex, she's nine. Alex is nine. Awesome. So what are you doing to prevent her from wanting to leave home at 16? Yeah, exactly. So Alex is a better version of me, a mini me. She hopefully doesn't have any of the trust problems or growing up issues and family issues that I had. And so she is just the bravest person in the world and she will do anything. And she's a great leader. She's very argumentative, just like me, (laughs) but she's going to be something really special in life. So she butt heads so much in kindergarten with, in the public school system, we had to move her to private school. And so we moved her to a gifted and talented school and she's thriving, even though she's the only girl in her class, which is pretty hard. So button Uh, heads in kindergarten and you're starting to see a lot of similarities, maybe a little bit of control and maybe a little bit of not being able to get along with authority or, or things like that. Just a little. Yeah, exactly. So, but it's all a lesson for like myself and her all the time. Right. Because as I'm saying things out loud, like we just, we just went on a Disney cruise, which was hell for me as an introvert, by the way. And we're on the Disney private Island fighting over like chairs. And afterwards she's like, I can't believe how rude that lady was. She stole our chairs and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you know what? What if she, her whole family had had a 24-hour bug the night before and was up all night and totally sick, and she was just having a really bad day, and she was like, huh, yeah, that's a good point. And then she turned around and did that lesson on somebody else yesterday, and so I was like, yay, I'm winning. (laughs) Well, of course, because she may see, like, you know, she's observing and you're setting a good example because you probably have done that in the past too and, and say something, you know, oh, and not yeah. really think I'm about how so it's... judgmental. Yeah. I was a very judgmental person growing up, very black and white about everything. Yeah. So... But you got to stop judging yourself to be able to fix that in yourself too. Typically, whenever I was judgmental, it was because I was judging people for the things I didn't like about myself. And yeah. That was with the things that I was pointing out. 
And I didn't know that. It was just pointing the finger, right? When you pointed at somebody else, you're pointing three back at yourself. I'm learning a lot about myself through my nine-year-old, my son. Similar situation. He's a similar type of person as your daughter, as you, as me. And I'm learning how to be better because I see what he's doing. So it's more of a reflection. My mom used to say this to me all the time growing up is if I could videotape you and you could see yourself, you'll know what you're doing or you'll, you would like, she just, I would be so stubborn. And now I have that videotape with my son. I'm now I'm seeing it. Yeah. So I could be a lot more empathetic to my mom's situation and probably a lot of my bosses or a lot of the people that I worked for growing up. So, um, but to be a better leader, you got to be a better person in and outside of the office or in and outside of, of the home too, you know, to be Mm -hmm. a better parent. Sure. I mean, I guess my biggest struggle right now is I've always been like a workaholic. And so even when I had gotten my work down to four hours a week in my tax, I'd modeled it after the Tim Ferriss four hour work week method and had it running like a charm. But then I pile on coaching, then I pile on tax when IQ and I pile on my doctorate. And like, I'm just like obsessed with learning. And so I have to constantly reevaluate myself and be like, am I working too much right now? Am I dedicating the time? Is my mental space in the right spot with my family? So I'm experiencing that as well. And maybe you could help me with this because that was, that's been a pattern that I'm starting to see is I will fill the space with more things to do. Mm-hmm. And I got yeah. out of all of it. I used to do that all with my firm. And I think a lot of our listeners or our students know this because they're dealing with it right now at their firms or even in other aspects of life is we can do all the things and we're high achievers and we're able to get a lot done, but then we keep feeling more because we start seeing success. And mm-hmm. when I got out of the firm, I started doing that with the podcast. Now I'm doing it with the raps and all of those, all the things, filling the time with more things to do. And it could be five different things and whatever it is, it seems like it's the most important thing right now because it's on top of mind. And I can't Mm -hmm. even be present sometimes because there's no separation between work and home now. So it's hard to be present if there's something happening in the head. How do you do that? How do you go on a cruise and not think about tax plan IQ every other minute? Well, I worked my off in June so that I wouldn't have to look at my computer at all in July, which was nice. And I have a great executive assistant who manages my whole email box. I literally, I've been having her do that for a while, but I literally this summer said, it is literally yours, like permanently. I'm not going into my email. Dope. I'm not even going to go into You're my one of the few system. people I know that has done that. I was so stressed. Like I, I had... You know, I get hundreds of emails every day and I want to do all of the things, right? Like there's all these exciting opportunities left and right. And so I would create tasks left and right, like, oh, you know, I'll prioritize them, urgent, non-urgent, et cetera. But it just got so overwhelming. I was like, I'm done with this. And if you don't see it, then you don't see the opportunities and you don't create those lists Mm -hmm. because you're not even seeing them. That was the unlock for me. Exactly. Yeah. But then you create the opportunities. We have so much in common. Don't we? You're like the yeah. male version of me. <laughs> Possibly. Or you're the female version of me. I mean, let's get real. Well, you know, what are the others? So, yeah. okay. So my best advice that I found for myself in, in this situation with workaholism is to have 
someone that's going to call you out on it. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, personally, my husband will easily call me out. This last weekend, we were at the soccer tournament for my daughter, and I get this great idea for my book, The Peaceful Entrepreneur. So I decide to write four more chapters on a Sunday. I'm like, what am I doing? They were great chapters, but, you know. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't even be like, so, so there's part of me that says that's inspiration and you have to channel it and you have to follow it because it's going to go away too. So when mm-hmm. you're creating, like writing a book or writing raps or whatever it might be, you, when those things hit you and those ideas hit you, I, I can't not do them. I can't not work on them at the moment because it's going to pass and it could be really good. Like the chapter in the book, I mean, I'm writing a book too, you know, our, my book's how to rap, how to run nice. a practice. Nice. Yours is the peaceful entrepreneur, right? You're trying to find peace as an entrepreneur. And as you're learning that you're writing it so you can help the next person, the other female or male version of you, you know, exactly, and so yeah. they could oh. read that and learn. Speaking of, I have to talk about this. So, you know, I heard about the controversy at Scaling New Heights about, you know, Ed and Ron. Oh, like they're, they're authors. Yeah, because they were men all men. So there's this whole discussion on Twitter about it. And I'm thinking there aren't any female business authors. So there really aren't that many. If you go look. You have Brene Brown behind you. Well, okay, yeah, That's there's one. one. <laughs> but most of the books behind you are written by males. I have a lot of those oh, same yeah. books. And if they are written by females, their intent their intention is towards other females and they have a pink cover or whatever. Sure. That's actually what inspired me to write this book because I was like, well, hell, you know, I love reading. I have learned so much from all these books and sources and stuff. And so I'm gonna go for it. Why not? Let's do it. You can be that female author and have them list you at the next Scaling New Heights. If I do it right, but I tend to try to rush into things versus, you know, the, doing it the right way. So I'm working through it right now. Well, if you've already got four chapters down. How many huh? chapters? It's 12 chapters. You already have written 12? Yeah. Or it's going to be 12? It's already done. Yeah. It's, it's done. done. I just added to it this last weekend. Yeah. Dope. Okay. Yeah. When does this book expect it to be released? I don't know. I have to figure out the publishing process. And then one of my coaching students, Tatiana Sawyer, she wrote a book, did really well with it. I asked her to proofread mine and she said it needs some work. <laughs> so, oh, that's hard. After you've worked so hard on something and then yeah. somebody tells you this is not there. I've heard that before. But it's true. I don't know how to write a book. I'm not an author. I love the constructive criticism. If I would, if I could get feedback from people constantly, I would be doing it. But like most of the time, people are too busy to just constantly give me feedback. Or to read stuff. your whole book and then tell you like. Yeesh. Yeah, yeah. So I feel you. there's a section on person, finding personal peace, then client peace with your clients through appropriate, like it's, it's very logical though. So it's time blocking. It's picking one task. That's going to make you feel like you got your day done when you can't, you know, tackle your whole urgency system. And then there's, it ends up with a section on teams and leadership. And did you write about, uh, about email? I did. Yeah, I did. I don't Your life is probably a lot different now that you found somebody to manage your email. Yeah, yeah. 
That's actually, that's a good idea. I should write about that because I take it for granted that, you know, you take it for granted the stuff that you've been doing, that it's not interesting to other people, but there are still so many people that struggle with that. And so I'm sure it would be helpful. Yeah, you do take that for granted. Thank you. That's a good point. Uh, right above my right shoulder, a world without email, Cal Newport. Maybe check oh, that out too before you do the email you chapter. There's a lot of tips, a lot of good stuff in there. You could probably apply it to being Sweet. a peaceful entrepreneur. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, well, um, this has been awesome. I know there's a lot of meat still on the bone and then we can have a continued conversation on Tuesday for our Tech Tuesdays at Accounting High. This has been great. How can our listeners, if they're interested to learn what Tax Plan IQ is, learn more about it, learn more about you? Maybe they need a coach. Maybe they want to find your book later. I know they can find you on LinkedIn, but where else? J-A-C-K-I-E, Meyer, where else can they find you? Pretty much every social platform. I've yet to pick one that's my favorite. I do host a Facebook group called Accounting from Influencers. We have about 7,000 accountants there. It's pretty fun. Uh, I know people aren't really using Facebook that much otherwise, but we're still going strong. But yeah, uh, Jackie.cpa or taxplaniq.com and reach out. I would love to hear from you. Dope. Well, thank you, Jackie, for joining us. Class thank dismissed. You.